Hello again. As you can see, I'm still trapped for the next two weeks or so in a living room full of even more boxes than last time. You might be able to watch the boxes increasingly encroach upon me for the next few videos, but then for the last four weeks of this series, I should be finally coming from a new and more elegant location. As I mentioned last time, Lewis is finally at the section of the book, 70 pages in, where he is ready to take up the main argument. He begins, quote, from the admission that God exists and is the author of nature, it is by no, it by no means follows that miracles must or even can occur, end quote. He's, he's already demonstrated in his judgment the existence of the supernatural, but miracles, as he said in the last chapter, are sort of irregular rather than regular moments in which the supernatural smashes into the natural. Uh, that nature is not safe from regular supernatural influence does not, not mean that she is unsafe from irregular supernatural influence or, or miracles uh, as we define those. Lewis' argument is now going to be that nature is not safe from miracles as well. Uh, there are two sets of reasons to think that miracles cannot or will not occur, at least two sets that Lewis deals with. Uh, th there might be something about nature that forbids miracles, and there might be something about God that forbids miracles. So there's arguments against miracles from the nature of nature, and there's arguments against miracles from the nature of God. Lewis is going to deal with the, the former first. So for the next two chapters, he's going to deal with reasons why it might be thought that nature forbids miracles, and then he'll move on to treating reasons to negate miracles based upon certain beliefs about God. Well, this chapter and the next are both about objections to miracles from a particular understanding of nature. Lewis is treating what he considers kind of superficial objections along those lines in this chapter, and we'll get to what he considers more substantive objections in the next chapter. So, so what are these superficial objections, though? Lewis addresses two of them throughout this particular, uh, th throughout this particular chapter. The first is a kind of non-philosophical sense that miracles somehow violate the laws of nature. Uh, this is often left unarticulated, but the basic idea is that we, we know how things work through science these days, and people used to believe in miracles before they figured all this stuff out. And so, so in this view, one might say both miracles and scientific laws, they're kind of both ways of understanding how a thing occurs, and they vie for the same explanatory space. Miracles and, and laws of nature then are in a kind of zero-sum competition to explain the phenomena we see before us. And now that we know that the world is explained through the laws of nature, you know, through science or whatnot, there's no reason to believe in miracles. Miracles are sort of out of a job, if you will. <laughs> Lewis, Lewis has a few replies to this, and it's worth paying close attention when you read them because he actually has some, some wonderful asides here. Uh, among his replies are that you need to understand a rule in order to understand an exception to a rule. This is very classic Lewis. Uh, as he puts it, quote, those who believe in miracles are not denying that there is such a norm or rule. They are only saying it can be suspended. A miracle is by definition an exception. How can the discovery of a rule tell you whether granted a sufficient cause, the rule can be suspended? Lewis point, end quote. Lewis point is that even if you observed a regular cause effect sequence every day for a million years, that would never tell you what was actually possible, but only what was ordinary. And miracles by definition are not ordinary. 
and a, and a regularity of nature is precisely what miracles presume. They are miracles precisely against the backdrop of a regular ordered nature. A regularly ordered nature then is, is so far from refuting miracles, it is rather the premise upon which we can even conceive of miracles as miracles. Moreover, while, while our understanding of the laws of nature has certainly grown, and this could be qualified in various ways, but it, it, we could say that it's grown, Lewis also wants to insist that our ancestors weren't actually as credulous and idiotic as we often project upon them. Uh, certainly credulous persons existed as credulous persons exist today, but the Bible, for instance, is full of persons who are actually surprised at miracles precisely because they aren't ordinary. You know, people saying things like, you know, we haven't seen stuff like this before. <laughs> Lewis also points out, and this is wonderful, <laughs> that a lot of the proof of our ancestors' superstition, that they believed in, in mythical beasts and such, was for them not a belief in miracle, but simply an understanding or a misunderstanding of the world of nature. That is to say, a lot of the beliefs that they had might have been turned, a lot of the beliefs they had that might have turned out to be wrong, such as believing in the existence of mermaids or something like that, had less to do with believing in miracles as misunderstanding the order of nature as such. And so whatever uh, one would want to call their credulity wasn't so much uh, their belief that strange things happened. It was their confusion, often at least, about ordinary things. And by the way, once again, we are just as credulous today. It only takes a scroll through uh, one's own Facebook feed to realize how much mythology is digested simply through testimony and misplaced trust, uh, interpretations of the ordinary world in those cases. The, the, the second objection Lewis deals with is often stated in our times as sort of something like this, you know, maybe there's a God, but why should we think he cares about us? You know, the olden folks thought man was the center of the universe, but now we know that we're just kind of peons in an unimaginably vast cosmos. It seems nuts to think God would actually meddle in the affairs of blokes on the edge of, you know, one of the zillions of galaxies floating about in one of its zillions of stars, you know, something like this. Uh, Lewis retorted to this as, first of all, that it, that it misunderstands how vast the ancients thought the universe was. And indeed, since Lewis, uh, historians have pointed out that the shift from uh, geocentrism to heliocentrism, that is the belief that the, that the sun rather than the earth is at the center of the solar system, uh, that the, that shift from geocentrism to heliocentrism was not that it devalued man. That is the problem with it was not that it devalued man, but rather that it overvalued man. In the old system, in the old cosmology, where earth was at the center of the solar system, the, the, the realms beyond the earth were actually more holy and pure in a slowly approximated God himself. And so in kind of shoving man away from the center and out into the celestial space, as it were, the thought was that man was actually overly spiritualized rather than reduced in his significance. So actually, in some ways, that, his, uh, that historical telling has it backwards. Anyway, Lewis has a few other retorts. Uh, first, he says, but by what measure do we determine what the Christian view ought to expect the universe to look like? You know, ought we to expect a universe that's small? What universe should we expect, you know, given Christian commitments? Why should it not look very much like this one? In fact, to the, to the extent that any religion undersells the feeling of uh, uh, insignificance that a man might have relative to the vastness of the cosmos, Lewis suspects that we have a defunct faith. Uh, you know, we might adduce Psalm 8 here. You know, what is man that thou art mindful of him when I consider the, the works of your hands, etc.? 
Lewis writes, quote, it is a profound mistake to imagine that Christianity ever intended to dissipate the bewilderment and even the terror, the sense of our own nothingness, which comes upon us when we think about the nature of things. It comes to intensify them. Without such sensations, there is no religion. Many a man brought up in the, in the glib profession of some shallow form of Christianity who comes through reading astronomy to realize for the first time how majestically indifferent most reality is to man and who, who perhaps abandons his religion on this account may at that moment be having his first genuinely religious experience, end quote. <laughs> That's vintage Lewis. He's always stealing the toys of others. Wonder at the vastness of the cosmos, the, the terror of how small it makes us feel is so far from a threat to the faith that rather any religion that does not permit it deserves to be killed by it. For precisely this sensation of vastness of dependence is a path to the cultivation of true faith. Uh, Lewis writes more in this chapter that I won't get into. Make, make sure to catch his treatment of the possibility of alien life, a, a subject which clearly fascinates him, as we can see in the Space Trilogy. Uh, but Lewis, uh, he goes on to make a, a move that I, I just love. This is a wonderful moment. Lewis wants to ask why we are so moved when we compare the vastness of the cosmos to the smallness of man. What's going on there? What's operative there? Let's you know, sort of interrogate that experience a little bit more. And what Lewis brilliantly argues is that it is man who makes the difference here. He writes, quote, to a mind which does not share our emotions and lacked our imaginative energies, the argument against Christianity from the size of the universe would simply be unintelligible. It is therefore from ourselves that the material universe derives its power to, over, to, to, to overawe us. Men of sensibility look up to the night sky with awe. Brutal and stupid men do not. <laughs> and, and then he writes later, quote, if the vastness of nature ever threatens to overcome our spirits, we must remember that, is it, that it is only nature spiritualized by human imagination which does so, end quote. And so combined with his previous argument, it might be that the capacity of man's imagination is precisely an evidence of his religious nature. So, so what's Lewis doing here? In part, he's trying to grasp how this argument ever became an argument. Why did men ever begin to think that cosmic bigness was an argument against religious particularity? His argument winds up being that bigness, after the influence in particular of 19th century uh, romantic movements and such, progressively replaced medieval metaphors of of brightness as the objects which rouse to the emotions of awe, humility, and exhilaration. The medievals might have used brightness more to, talk, to, to induce those sensations. Well, but what's he driving at? He's trying to show that modern man operates very much like the people that we consider primitive. As philosophical arguments, an argument from brightness is no more compelling than an argument from bigness. But there is perhaps a sensibility in each, an instinct that is apt. Nevertheless, Lewis argues, our primitivisms do, uh, do not so much go away as, as sort of change form. We are just as primitive as our ancestors in our philosophical gestures, even if the metaphors we use are baptized as, as reasonable, depending on circumstances and, and knowledge. So what Lewis is doing, and what I think students should try to remember, is showing how much these kinds of sentiments have to do with something that's going on in man. Uh, you know, we're, we're just as primitive as our ancestors, with both its liabilities 
and it's uh, and the vantage points that those primitivisms give us. There's something right about that that sensation we have relative to bigness and what it means about God, what it means about the cosmos. Um, it's the nature of man to be wowed by greatness, to be awed by the infinite. It is not the universe which perceives itself this way. It is man who rightly perceives the universe this way. Man is, as it were, the, the mouthpiece of creation. And while small in himself, that special piece of nature which gives voice to the whole of nature. And even atheists in their denial of God must title their books as, as Richard Dawkins recently did things like the, you know, the greatest show on earth. Uh, man cannot bring himself to care about what he does not find beautiful, what he cannot finally situate in the form of a narrative. You know, Carl Sagan's cosmos can only act as a parasite on man's intrinsic longing for God. And I think this is prescient of Lewis. You know, sometimes we think that the debate over things like theism and atheism is about comparative philosophical rigor, and it, and it can be. But we need to remember that the mind of man is never operating in abstraction from all the faculties of man. And what makes a particular vision of the world seem right or wrong to a man never really entirely reduces down to simple mental gymnastics. Part of what we need to learn to observe is man himself. We need to become students of ourselves and of mankind in general. What can we learn about man and about reality just by observing what man does, no matter what he thinks or believes, what's common to human beings? This winds up helping you craft your rhetorical appeal to whole persons rather than to abstracted minds alone. And it winds up helping you craft your rhetorical appeal to yourself as you try to work through these things. All right then, Lewis has worked through a few weak arguments against miracles from, from the side of things that would say nature forbids them. Next time he'll work through stronger arguments of this nature. And so from, from life among this pile of boxes here to you, I'll see you for those arguments next time.